It is a real joy for me to be your preacher on this occasion, and and for a lot of reasons. Uh, One is, I love this church. I have not had a chance to be face-to-face with you. Uh, I attended one of your elders' meetings on vacation, which shows my vacations are very boring. It was... (laughs) It was the highlight of my vacation. Rick, Rick was there, and, and uh, we, we really, I really enjoyed being in that meeting. Uh, you have a, it is a great church, uh, not in any kind of prideful sense, but in the sense that I love and admire what this church is and what it stands for, how it functions, uh, how you work together with your leadership. It's just, it's just wonderful. And this is where my wife and I come to church when we are on vacation in Charleston, which is every year and uh, usually more than once a year. So you have ministered to me. I've heard many great sermons, uh, enjoyed worship repeatedly uh, in a rich and warm way, and, uh, and, and enjoyed many wonderful Sunday school lessons, Bible lessons in Sunday school. So I really do love your church, and it is a true honor to be here. It is a great honor a greater honor to be able to honor my friend Buster Brown. Uh, I have known Buster since shortly after he got here, and in the years that I have known him, uh, he has been a good brother, a good friend. We read books together, we talk about them over the phone, we get together and talk about them in person. Uh, probably the thing I look forward to the most on vacation is some face-to-face time at one of the cheap coffee shops he likes to visit. And uh, we, uh, we enjoy getting together and just talking about church and theology and the Word of God. It is no trouble for me to understand how this church has done as well as it has. The glory goes to God, uh, but we do owe thanks and appreciation to people who so faithfully serve in the power of the Word and the power of the cross, as does Buster. And that's the theme that I've been asked to address today, the power of the Word of God and the power of the cross, and it is my pleasure to do so. I want us to look together at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to look particularly at verses 18 and 19. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. I want to begin with Psalm 127, 1, which says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Now, clearly that doesn't mean that God hammers the nails or cuts the boards. Uh, To understand what he means by this, uh, you have to understand this is a psalm attributed to Solomon. And it probably was written early in his life, sometime around the time he was considering strongly finishing the promise that God had made to his father that his son would build the temple. And that no longer would the place of worship in Israel be this temporary tent of meeting. And so Solomon, in considering the building of the temple, or perhaps he's looking back and saying, if the Lord had not built the house, all of us who labored would have labored in vain. And Solomon provides a very interesting example for us that Buster needs to remember, I need to remember, All of you need to remember, your elders need to remember it, and you need to remember it not only about your church, but you need to remember it about your families. You need to remember it about your businesses. You need to remember it about your personal lives. Unless the Lord build the house, the labor you do is in vain. Unless the family you built is built to the Lord's purpose and in the Lord's ways, 
You labor in vain who build it. There are a million clever ways to build a family. But the Lord's way builds families that don't just survive, they thrive. And, and, and they are able to handle life in a joyful way that glorifies God. And the same is true of church. If the people, if the pastor, do not see to it that the Lord build the church, guide it, direct it, control it, confront it, correct it, lead it, envision it, empower it, all of those things, if they don't happen, it's a vain labor. How do we go about seeing to it that we do not labor in vain. Let's remember Solomon again for just a moment. I'll tell you, I, about uh, 30, well, it wasn't 30 years ago, about 15 years ago, I received a letter from this, what was the Sunday school board at the time inviting me to do something at Glorietta Conference Center. And I looked at it quickly and thought I was being invited to be the preacher for Sunday school week. And so I wrote back and said, I happily accept, thank you very much. About two weeks before it was time to go to Glorietta, my wife was looking through the papers on my desk. Uh, she does that to make sure I'm not making a complete mess of something. And uh, on there was the letter of confirmation from them. And she said, I cannot believe that you have agreed to teach Ecclesiastes. I said, I've done no such thing. She said, yes, you have. Here's the letter of confirmation. I said, you're kidding. She said, no, here it is. I said, I don't even like Ecclesiastes very much. It's just not very spiritual. It's very glum and dull, you know. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity, saith the preacher. That's how it begins. She said, well, you've agreed to do it, and it's too late to make a change. So I called a friend of mine who had a Ph.D. in Old Testament, and I said, I've agreed to do this, didn't pay enough attention to know that's what I was agreeing to do, help. He said, here's the best way to look at the three things Solomon wrote. He wrote the Song of Solomon, the book of Proverbs, and the book of Ecclesiastes. Think of it this way in his life. The Song of Solomon was a book that was written by a young man who was full of himself. God had blessed him. He had become wealthy and powerful. Uh, He had every aphrodisiac known to men, particularly wealth and power. And so women were no problem for him. And so all of life to him must have seemed like the Song of Solomon. And it was an easy thing for him to write. By the time he got into his 50s, he had been able to see what wisdom had done, expand the kingdom of Israel beyond where it had ever been or where anybody had ever dreamed. And so he began to be interested in writing wisdom down for people. And so he writes the book of Proverbs. But the interesting thing about Solomon is he never got beyond the use of wisdom and power, did he? And so by the end of his life, because there was no spiritual curb on it, he was no longer, the Lord was no longer building the house of Israel. The Lord was no longer in control of things. Solomon was. And he would do any clever thing, create any foreign alliance in order to justify, in order to protect Israel. And so he would marry any foreign queen, adopt any foreign god, build a foreign temple, put the high places up everywhere. And David, with the horrible mistake he made early in his life, finished in great love with the Lord. And Solomon, who began unbelievably well, never got beyond the initial blessing of the Lord. And so the book of Ecclesiastes 
is the mind of a man who never gets beyond wanting the mind of God, but having very little interest in the heart of God. So the Lord was no longer building the house. His principles, his ideas, the wisdom Solomon had accumulated, that began to become the point of life. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, Paul writes to the Corinthians about the word of the cross and about the necessity of it for God's people. And I think this is the great corrective for all our lives and building our own lives, our own business, our families, and indeed our churches. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Set aside. How much better off would Solomon have been if his wisdom had been crushed and his need for God had been elevated? Instead, Solomon learned to ignore the hard commands of God and to pay attention only to the wisdom that had been given, as wonderful as it is. The word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Our wisdom, when we follow the cross, look to the cross, love the cross, when we do that, our wisdom is judged as to its limits every week. And we are reminded when we respond to our wives, our husbands, our children, our parents, there is something at stake besides just the wise or the clever or the smart way to do it. The word of the cross. I think probably most of you know you have such a great preacher that there are two words for word in the New Testament. But let's take a minute to review it because it's important to remember. Because when it says the word of the cross, it doesn't mean that the word C-R-O-S-S has any magic. The word here is logos, uh, the word from which we get our word logic. And you, you can't put that back into the Greek language and say it means the same thing as logic, but it is related. The logos meant, instead of meaning a part of speech, it really meant thought with purpose and power. It describes much more what God did in Genesis 1 when God said, let there be light and there was light. It wasn't just God was saying abracadabra and there was light. It was that the purpose and the power of God met with the purpose of God and what He intended happened. And so what Paul says is that the cross... There's no magic in splinters from the cross or in the appearance of the cross. It is the purpose of God and the power of God offered to mankind through the cross. So it describes God's planned intent. God always intends that the church not only be saved by what happened on the cross, but it that be governed by the cross. Dean said to me, I really want you to talk about the cross. It is such a huge part of what informs everything Buster does. Let me ask you this. Could that be said of you about your family? When you die and they are planning your funeral, do you think your wife or your husband 
would say, you must address the subject of the cross at this funeral. That represented everything she did as a wife, as a mother. Everything he did as a husband or as a father. Is that what they would want or would they want them to say, he was a good man, he worked hard, and all those things which are good. But would someone want to say, you'll never ever understand him as a man, you'll never understand her as a woman. Unless you understand the cross. Because the word of the cross, the purpose and the power of God expressed in what happened on the cross and what is happening through the cross, that was what characterized his or her life. And God forbid that a church should not be characterized by the word of the cross, by the purpose and the power of God through the cross. And it says the word of the cross. What does it mean to say the word of the cross? It means the word regarding the cross or the word associated with the cross, the principles and power related to the cross. Three things I think that means. The first is that the cross was necessary and still is. Uh, I don't want you to be overly impressed by the fact that I've read Homer. What I'm going to read to you is on the first page. That's as far as I've gotten. (laughs) This is what the author says regarding Odysseus. Many pains he suffered, heart sick on the open sea, fighting to save his life and bring his comrades home. But he could not save them from disaster. Hard as he strove, the recklessness of their own ways destroyed them all. The recklessness of their own ways destroyed them all. Pre-New Testament, pre-cross, but very accurate about the nature of man. Whatever you call it, all of us are at some point nuts. All of us know what to do and don't do it, know what not to do and do it, even when it would be easier and more profitable to do the right thing. And so in describing this hero of the, of the Odyssey, uh, the author of the great poem says, the reckless, their recklessness destroyed them all. What makes us reckless? Well, the cross says it is sin. Whatever you want to call it, it is something born into us. It is something horribly wrong in us. It is something that keeps working through us, pulling us back when we ought to go ahead, pushing us forward when we ought to pull back. And if you don't understand that, you'll never feel the need for the cross. You'll see religion as a great self-improvement strategy that we come to church to learn how to be better men and women, but we don't come to church for the message of the cross. The cross was necessary, and it still is. Secondly, the cross was lovingly accomplished. It is an amazing thing that God, did you hear in that song, And Can It Be, that, that my God would die for me? The first time the gospel ever occurred to me was in St. John's Episcopal Church in Tampa, Florida. Beautiful church, very high in its worship. Every word of every service was chanted. And I went because I'd grown up going to churches in that denomination. And when I went to church in college, that was where I went. And I would just sort of just 
be bored through the service, but it felt like something I ought to do. But I remember one Sunday morning when we were waiting for church to begin and you were supposed to kneel, and so I was, and I was looking around thinking the normal thoughts, my knees hurt, my back hurts, when will this begin? And I looked at this grand window up over the altar, and in the middle of the window, it's called a rosate window, in the middle of one is Christ on the throne, and then around it in the petals of the rose are the twelve apostles. And the light of the early morning was coming in through the window. And I looked at that, and for the first time, I thought something other than, why do I have to be here? What is this about? And I looked at it, and I thought, they're going to tell me that he died for me. And I remember when the man ran over my dog when I was 12 years old, and at the moment I saw him hit my dog, I hated that man. I would not love that man who killed my dog, and I remember how bad I felt toward him. And I thought to myself, if it's that hard for me to give up my dog, what would it be like to give up your perfect son? What would that be like? Well, I didn't understand that it's not just a concept that moves your heart. It's the offer of the Lord Jesus Christ to people that all who believe should have eternal life. But it did begin to dawn on me that this was something that is love beyond what I could ever normally imagine. And when you look at the cross, you need to remember not only that you needed it, but that it is the love of God expressed in amazing ways. And finally, the cross is exclusively necessary. There are many things about all religions that are similar to each other, but there are also things that are very different, and this is one of them. No other religion is based on a sacrifice. It's based on a book. It's based on wisdom. It's based on some kind of an agreement. It's based on a lifestyle, all those things. But What we believe is based on an event that happened 2,000 years ago when a man died in the most cruel way anybody has ever figured out to use. The cross is exclusively necessary. Apart from what Jesus Christ did on the cross, there is no possibility of eternal life. And I know that we live in a day just, just like this bumper sticker coexist with all the different religious signs on it. I, I, I just want to stop one of those people and say, are you under the impression that we're doing something other than coexisting? I mean, what else have we been doing? We're not shooting each other. What they want is for everybody to agree. And as a rabbi said who came to talk with me, he said, do you think we can be friends? I said, I don't know. I use that word very sparingly. And uh, But I said, I would love to spend time with you. He said, well, you need to know, theologically, I am the enemy of Christianity. Sociologically, I believe you are the best friend the Jewish people have. I said, I think we might get along quite well. I am so tired of people trying to homogenize everything. You don't wind up with truth when you only go for the lowest common denominator. And so the cross is the claim that apart from what Jesus did on the cross, there is no remission of sin. This flies in the face of common sense. It flies in the face of the movement of our culture. But it is so true. 
When I graduated from high school, I was really tired of what I have made of my life. Uh, I had had fun, which was what I was mostly interested in in high school. I had not been a good student, uh, and I had not been a good person. And about halfway through my senior year, I remember thinking one day about the mess that I had made of things. And I thought, you know, I made the choice to be this way. But now the reason I stay this way is my friends. I've developed friends, and we all like to do the same things. And if any of us tries to quit the circle, the others pull them back in. So if I go to college where I don't know anybody, then I can pick a new lifestyle and start again, and I'll have no pressure to go back to the old one. So that's what I did. I chose a college where, as far as I know, I knew at the time, nobody from my high school went there. It was the University of South Florida in Tampa, 22,000 students. I thought, now I can pick my own friends, my own lifestyle. I can become whatever I want to be. I was so dumb when I graduated from high school that I was under the impression that my biggest problem was outside myself. My biggest problem was in here. And I took it with me, and I didn't need a suitcase. And so when I got to the University of South Carolina, the University of South Florida, I opened myself up, and the same Dick Lincoln climbed out that had climbed out in Leon High School. It's just like Odysseus. Their recklessness destroyed them all, and I did it again. By the time I graduated, I realized I've made about a 5% improvement in four years. I don't have enough years left to get anywhere close to where I think I ought to be, and I began to get very depressed, and out of that, I understood my need for something bigger than anything I could produce, and Jesus Christ sent Two young women by my apartment. I had had a college roommate who was a Christian all the way through college. And I had begun to see and think about the difference that he had in his life. And anyway, I heard the gospel, received Christ as my Savior, and, and, and the rest is history. And it is a wonderful thing to know that's the power of the cross. What about the perspective of the cross? I mean, with all that it means and all that it does, why doesn't everybody get it? Why didn't I get it? Why did I have to live with a guy for four years and see the power of God in his life before it began to dawn on me, maybe he's got something I don't have. Maybe it could help me. Why does it take that long? Well, it says again in verse 18, the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to those who are saved, it is the power of God. It is foolishness. The word of the cross, as far as they are concerned, is not needed at all. Uh, It heads us away from what really matters. Hard work, good intentions, sincerity. Why should we focus on the cross, something that happened a long time ago to a man who didn't have enough sense to get out of the trouble he was in when he was given the opportunity? Why would we want to follow him? We all know, as I thought when I graduated from high school, it's what I make of it. And so to people who are not converted, the word of the cross just looks like the most empty, silly nonsense. And the church, unfortunately, the church, this is the story of liberalism. They've said, oh, don't call us foolish. Tell us what we need to say so you won't think us foolish. And the world has got an endless array of things they want to hear from us, but not 
that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your punishment and whoever believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. They don't want to hear that. It is to them foolishness, childishness, silliness, ancient, unnecessary. They believe that wise decisions and wise actions are what make life great. And when we say, okay, fine, let us then become wise in our thoughts and our actions. And all we're doing then is going back to Solomon. We're stuck in midlife. We never become what we ought to be. And the church without the cross is not the church at all. It's just another civic club. And the word, but the word to those who are being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God. Just as there are two words for word, one meaning a part of speech, the other meaning thought that has purpose and power. The word here, it is the power of God. There are two words for power in the New Testament. One, exousia, which is oftentimes translated rights. And it describes the kind of authority that I have in my family and that I have in my church. It requires cooperation for it to work. Uh, I don't have the ability to be a stick of dynamite in my church. I am dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit, the cooperation and the help of other people. It's the way it works in home. You, you can't shoot people who don't cooperate with you. Don't wish you could. God has not given me that kind of power, but he has reserved it to himself. And that is the word dunamis, from which we get our word dynamite and our word dynamic. I'll tell you something about a stick of dynamite. If I take a stick of dynamite and roll it under Dean's chair, Dean is going to change whether he wants to or not. <laughs> the dynamite is not dependent upon Dean. And the power of the cross is not dependent on me. If I reject it, the cross is not harmed. If I disagree with it or dislike it, the cross is not harmed. The purpose of God is not harmed. His logos, His purposeful thought, continues to move on exactly as it was intended from the beginning of time. The only thing that happens is I'm left on the riverbank and the river moves on. But the dunamis of God, the power of God, the word of the cross is to those who are being saved. It is the power of God. And notice, to those who are being saved. It doesn't matter where you are along the path of salvation. If you are at the grain of mustard seed beginning, or if you are one of those wonderful old men or women to whom everyone looks for spiritual example, it is equally the dunamis. We would all say, I remember when I was going my own way, doing my own thing, doing the best I could and failing. And something happened and God changed my life. It's why the new birth is so important. If you have not been born again, if you have not been changed by the dunamis of God, the dynamite of God, then what we talk about in most of the Bible doesn't make any sense to you. But if you are along that line and you know the power of God, then you say to yourself, this is God's power, His ongoing power. Preach it, live it, love it, tell it. It is the power of God. The third thing is the danger of wisdom. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. There is something about the cross that makes 
the embrace of it so much more important than the understanding of it. Wisdom, human beings are the only people, are the only beings that God ever made who can take the very best that God offers us and turn it into a source of pride and vanity and self-actualization. Love, look what we've done to it in the last 20 years. Power, look what we've done to that forever. Uh, you, you can take the finest thing that you can imagine and we can turn it to our own purposes and use it to turn us away from God. If I can do this, I don't need you. And so he tells us in verse 19, he writes to the Corinthians who were very intellectual and, and, and very debate-oriented. They had grown up in the Greek tradition. And so they were people who, uh, as it said earlier, Jews look for signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. We do not pander to wisdom. We do not pander to experience and signs. We keep preaching the word of the cross. We keep preaching the crucified Savior. We preach, keep preaching the risen Messiah. We keep telling the story and we watch the power of God do its work in every generation. The cross cannot be fully appreciated with wisdom or the intellect. Surely after you are born again, understanding what you can of it is what we need to do. But if you can wrap your mind around the grace of God, you got the greatest mind that was ever made. It is so amazing. Why wouldn't you just say, I love it, and it is the only way I have any hope, and and let it be. Wisdom comes from two sources, experience and words of others. The great wisdom of God comes from the Word of God. I come to it by my experience of failure. Until you are touched and brought by the Spirit of God, the Word of the cross will seem foolish and lightweight. But when your life is touched and you are born again and the Spirit of God is at work in your life and the Word of God is a living, powerful influence in your life, when that happens, the Word of the cross becomes not foolish, silly, a source of debate, but it becomes the power of God. One of the first church growth books that was written was written by a Methodist bishop, and it was called Why Conservative Churches Are Growing, and the subtitle should have been And Why I Hate It. Because he could not understand why, in his own denomination, conservative churches were doing well and liberal churches were not. And why, in the church at large, the same was true. And so he came up basically with the same set of ten characteristics of successful pastors that Peter Wagoner came up with, and they came out at about the same time. I read both books. And and I remember thinking, why would you want to try to explain this sociologically? Because one of the characteristics that both of them discovered was they are deeply committed to the Bible as the Word of God. They are deeply committed to the Bible as the Word of God. And there are people who think if you're committed to that ancient book, instead of to the latest and positive and possibility thinking, you're just stupid and backwards. Look around you. Does this look like a stupid, backward crowd? We don't look too stupid and backward in Columbia either. God destroys the wisdom of the world and raises up the wisdom of the cross. Raises up the power of the cross. There are 
four approaches that I see people taking to the word of the cross. And I'd like for us as we close for you to think about which one of these you are the most like. They are the exposure method, the trade-off method, the selection and balance method, and the perfect aim method. Let me explain them. First, there is the exposure method, which means if I stay near it, maybe some of it will fall on me. I started to call it the pixie dust method today, but I thought, well, that's probably a little too silly. So the exposure method. I go to church once in a while. I have a Bible on my coffee table. I like to hang around with religious folk once in a while, sign up for a Bible study. I like the feeling that I get there, and who knows, maybe one day it will happen. Well, faith does come by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, so it is a good thing to be exposed. But exposure has to turn to something else. Otherwise, you'll be a hearer and not a doer. The second is the trade-off method. I started to call this the superstitious method. You know how that works. If I turn my hat around backwards, we'll win the baseball game. No, if we hit a couple home runs, we'll win the baseball game. Your hat has nothing to do with it. And there are people who act like if they go to church, if they own a Bible, if they get in a Bible study, if they give some money, if they quit cussing, if they quit doing something like that, that then God will heal their marriage or uh, make someone well in their family or make them wealthy in their business. And it's just like saying, if I say abracadabra, the earthquake will stop. Earthquakes happen because of tectonic shifts. Abracadabra has nothing to do with that. And so when we get the idea that we can play games with, with God and say, God, let's do a trade-off. I've got some real problems in my life. God, please, if I do this that I think you've always wanted me to do, then will you do this over here? Instead of saying, Lord Jesus, I have no hope apart from you. Be the word of the cross to me. Remind me of my dependence upon you. The third is the selection and balance method, and that's one that I see very common today. Uh, there are a lot of people today, probably always have been, but there certainly are a lot of them today that treat everything like a cafeteria. And you go through and you say, I'll have some of that. No, none of that today, if you don't mind. And that's the way they treat the Bible. And they go through it, and they take the parts they like, and they leave off the parts they don't. Now, none of us get all of it right. But to say... I don't even need to try, is to lose the word of the cross. The fourth is the one that the Bible recommends. Jesus said, be ye perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, I don't believe that perfection is possible in this world. The Bible teaches that it is not. But woe be to him who says, since I can't get there in this world, I'm just not going to worry about it. So, I came up with the idea in trying to explain what that passage of Scripture means to to my church. I, I hope this will help you. I say to them, you need to perfect your aim and lengthen your reach. You need to perfect your aim. God, I want to be all that you want me to be. And I want to be further along each week, each day, each month than I have been by your power. Here's something that may help you understand the importance of it. If someone had come to me and said, Dr. Lincoln, I want to marry your daughter, but you need to understand I'm only human. Uh, I I hope that I can be a good husband to her, but you never know. 
I'd, I'd like to think that I'll be faithful, but I, I'm not sure. And I think I'll work hard and provide for her, but, you know, sometimes I, I like to fish. And, uh, and I think I'll be a good father to the children, but I may not like children, and so you just never know. So I'll do the best I can. I'd say, son, I'm, I'm going to leave the living room now, and I'm going to go back in my room. I've got a shotgun back there. If you are here when I get back, you're not going to like what I do with it. Wouldn't you? Now, imagine another young man asking for my daughter's hand in marriage, and he says, I want you to know. I will love your daughter as no man has ever loved a woman. I will be faithful to her. I will never stray in thought, word, or deed. I will be the best breadwinner you can imagine. I will love her and love the children no matter the conditions. You can count on me. I will be the best husband anybody ever had. Nobody can live up to that, can they? But wouldn't you say, son, you're the man. That's what God wants from you. He doesn't want to hear you say, I'm only human. He wants to hear you say, I want to perfect my aim. I want my eye on the cross. I want to trust the word of the cross. I want for for me, I want it to be the power of God. I want it to change the way I treat people when they mistreat me. I want it to change the way I care for the poor. I want it to change the way I love the Bible. And I want it to be something that changes me apart from just my trying hard. Lord Jesus... Please work in my life to make the word of the cross be something about which I perfect my aim and constantly lengthen my reach. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the cross, for the the love of the Lord Jesus Christ that came to earth from a perfect place, lived among imperfect people who hated and despised him, and went to the cross, went to the cross, and gave himself as a ransom for many. Lord Jesus, be at work in everyone in this room today. Help us to be a people who want to perfect our aim, who don't want to make excuses in advance, and who want very much to lengthen our reach by the power of the Holy Spirit, the truth of the Word of God, by your work in us. In the name of Jesus, amen.